I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. Shout out to technology. Scott and I are able to practice our social distancing. So we are in our respective homes. You are feeling cozy and, and, and safe where you are? Yeah, I feel fine physically. Um, and I've got the little basement studio set up here. Actually, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but I was out walking radar today and it was just so weirdly still. Yeah, yeah. So so as we tape this, we're still in the heat of the COVID-19 uh, coronavirus um, scare. Um, it's impacting, you know, mental health, but it's having a huge impact on people's pockets, namely folks in the service industry, in any any industry that deals with people, and um, even, even the music industry, as we talked about um, in the last opus. And uh, in that last opus, I offered a, a couple of resources for folks looking for ways to support our artists and musicians um, during this time. I actually brought in a couple more for this opus. So um, Kwanis Floyd uh, may be a name that uh, folks, uh, that regular Triloquy listeners will recognize. She um, heads the Arts Administrators of Color Network, and she has the Arts Leaders of Color Emergency Fund. So there will be a link um, to that in the description of this episode. I also um, found a website called equalsounds.org. They have a Corona Relief Fund for musicians. Uh, many of the initiatives I saw required memberships of some sort of union or um, uh, institution affiliation, but that looks like one that's open to anyone. So again, the um, the uh, descriptions and uh, links to that will be uh, in the description uh, of this opus. Scott, have you um, have seen any uh, economic uh, impact in your, in your direct community? I, I know you have ties with some of the local businesses in your area. Well, all of the bars and restaurants have closed down. And, you know, we did, you and me and Dell talked a little bit about maybe we should go out while we still can. And then everything went on lockdown really, really quickly. And yeah. so uh, my heart goes out to the people at Tongue and Cheek and Brunson's Pub, you know, the two home bases over here on the east side of St. Paul. Yeah, shout out, shout out to them. And um, as we continue to explore ways to support artists and, and all individuals um, impacted uh, financially by this crisis, be sure to uh, just reach out to us. If there's an initiative that uh, you think needs some um, attention or needs a spotlight, just uh, shoot us a note at uh, triloquy at americanpublicmedia.org, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, we get them a shout out. You know, it's really important that we pull together our fiscal resources, but also our social resources. So be sure to um, spread links and uh, share the news on ways to um, combat the uh, impacts of this um, of this really uh, just this horrible horrible um, health scare. All right, so uh, we're here uh, at the end of Women's History Month, the final opus of Triloquy for Women's History Month. It's it's been a um, a really great month for me. Scott, do you have any uh, standout moments or things that uh, that you've learned this month that you didn't know before? So I recorded an episode of Hop Notes with Urban Growler in St. Paul, and it's uh, two married women that fought some really almost insurmountable odds to open up their tap room, and now they're one of the best in the state. They mm -hmm. are the first woman-owned brewery in the state. And through my conversations with them, you know, uh, I, I started to look back at brewing history, and women were more frequently brewers than men. Um, it was part of the household chores, you know. So 
what a great discovery. Uh, obviously, you and I talked with Elle. Uh, yes, yes. Is, uh, she's with Brewing for Change. Uh, br- the Brewing Change Collaborative. To, so, so shout out to them. She had some great information to share, too. But musically, uh, you know, there's obviously all the Fanny Mendelssohn, the Clara Schumann, blah, 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 blah. But uh, do you know the name Amanda Meyer? I don't. She ended up marrying Julius Rontgen. You probably oh, the composer, sure, right? sure. But she was the first woman to graduate with a degree in conducting, 1872, at the Royal College of Music in Stockholm. Oh, wow, wow. So... Um, yeah, a cool Nordic tie-in there, and a woman named uh, Kate Moore. She composes and plays cello, but she teams she's teamed up with cellist Ashley Bathgate, and the two of them use loop pedals and things like that in their performances. It's just a some really interesting music that that borders on something that you might hear on a on a pop station. Sure, sure. You know, for me, when I hear you talk about um, the the misconception that uh, you know brewing was a, a, a man run thing, and how really it was most of the women, you know that that takes my mind to some of the conversations we had this month on Triloquy concerning um, rock and roll music, the guitar. You know how how folks um, who are women uh, are really at the forefront of of so much um, of that genre. You know, so again, yeah. a, a, another um, huge shout out to the late. Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, you know, uh, a name that I think so many more people need to know. But I'll tell you, Scott, uh, one of the one of the things that I've really had to explore in a real real way this Women's History Month is um, intersectionality as it applies to race and gender. So, you know, a question that um, I I got a lot um, over the past few weeks was, you know, how how do I um, deal with my focus on racial equity? as it applies to gender. And mm-hmm. it, it, it just makes me think about the fact that even in Women's History Month, um, historically uh, and in many ways in a contemporary way, the achievements of black women specifically um, have really just been overlooked. And um, in the conversation that I have uh, with today's guest, we, we get into that a little bit. Um, her name is Janice Lane Ewart. She is um, a, a local to the uh, Twin Cities. She works for a radio station, KBEM. And um, and uh, w- one of the uh, first things that really drew me to her in our very first conversation, uh, probably about a year ago now, is the fact that she got to see Nina Simone um, live multiple times. And of course, Nina Simone is one of the pillars when it comes to music and activism and and feminism. But um, she she urged me to check out another artist that she actually brings up in the conversation today, a woman named Amina Claudine Myers. Were you familiar or are you familiar with her at all, Scott? Not at all. Yeah, I, I wasn't either. So I I, uh, I took the opportunity to to look up uh, some of her music, to read up about her, and. Um, 
for, uh, you know, as we wrap up Women's History Month here on Triloquy, I, I wanted to make sure that I gave her a shout out and offered you listening uh, the opportunity to kind of learn about her um, aesthetic. Uh, this is a, an excerpt of a tune of hers called African Blues. And then, of course, as you can hear in that excerpt, you know, the the so-called, you know, classical training, classical technique is very much there. Um, uh, just another uh, name that that we should really uh, just really be exploring. As I think about the importance of Women's History Month, you know, it, it drives me to something that Janice said at the end of our conversation. I asked her what should people uh, take forward um, as we leave Women's History Month um, so that we just don't forego these conversations and until next year, you know, the, mm-hmm. the way we do in so many ways. And, and and she said that, you know, we have to spark our curiosity. And if there's a woman whose name pops across your screen, a news anchor, just, just someone in your periphery, um, take the opportunity to learn something about her. Uh, feed that spirit of curiosity and make sure you're really uh, not overlooking the achievements of women, you know, both famous and um, in your life. And, and and for me, that, that really speaks to... Um, the selection of many of the guests we have on this podcast is really important not to um, overlook um, the achievements of women. And Janice is definitely someone who has achieved so much. You know, she's of the age where she had to um, deal with the real impacts of, you know, Jim Crow and in the heat of the civil rights movement. And she talks a a bit about that um, in this opus. Um, We also get into um, an organization called the Association for the Advancement of uh, Creative Music. They're they're an organization, a black-led organization that um, fights for the rights of uh, black musicians down in Chicago. Um, A a really great conversation um, that I hope uh, that you will enjoy. And again, I just want to underscore one more time, it's that sense of curiosity. Janice may not be someone um, who you've heard of or, or someone who uh, will ever uh, cross your path, whether you're local to uh, Minnesota or not. But the stories that she has uh, to, to tell are just really um, inspirational to me. So I, I hope you'll enjoy this. Um, and then at the end of this opus, uh, there's going to be a performance by uh, Laura Downs that I'll uh, talk a little bit more about after we get through the interview. So, Scott, uh, before we jump into it, I mm-hmm. I want to ask you, are you familiar with um, an artist uh, by the name of Dinah Washington? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So in, in my conversation with Janice, we talk about her musical upbringing, and she says that she grew up in a rhythm and blues home where there was always uh, rhythm and blues playing and dancing going on in the living room. And when I asked her to think of an artist um, that she connects with those memories, uh, she mentioned Dinah Washington. So as we uh, get into um, uh, our conversation with Janice Lane Ewart, I thought we listened to a little bit of a tune by uh, Miss Washington called What a Difference a day makes. And these days, that's absolutely true, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So take a listen uh, to this excerpt uh, of uh, Dinah Washington, and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Janice Lane Ewart. Find romance on your menu What a difference 
Janice, it's such a pleasure to finally uh, get you here. Glad you're you're feeling better and uh, uh, above the weather. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming in. Thank you. I I feel particularly privileged today to be able to be out and not constrained by the current circumstances, knowing that there are many who are not sitting up and out and having mm-hmm. the ability to come and converse with you at this point in time. Yeah, you know, and and um, w- with the the virus and all that stuff going on, I actually um, thought about asking you a question. You know, something I hadn't thought about was how um, this pandemic impacts musicians. You know, there are gigs yes. getting canceled. Is, is that right. something that you've been thinking about? Oh, not only am I thinking about it, I arrived home last night to learn that a gig my husband had been contracted for five months ago that would pay several thousand dollars was shut down yesterday. Oh, my goodness. He he already purchased a ticket to be gone tomorrow for a month on a project with five other musicians who are spread across the Midwest and the East Coast. Mm, Yeah, and and it just speaks to how issues like these you know, really impact those of us who work yes. for a living more than others. And it's not something that people always think about. We we, we may have to um, circle back around to that. But, um, you know, the more, the more entrenched I get in this social justice and, um, and racial equity work as it applies to uh, music, the more I really treasure these stories of the past. It, it's one thing to go on the Internet and read a Wikipedia article about something, but um, y- you have experienced so much. And I know the the last time we uh, sat and chat, uh, you, you talked about your experience seeing Nina Simone uh, yes, a couple times live. I, exactly. I wonder if you would talk a little bit more about that. Yes, I am reminded of her presence because there's many articles that, talk about her in very positive ways. There are others that have covered her more uh, sensitive side Mm -hmm. or temperamental side. And I have fortunately seen her twice where I was in the second row and she was at the grand piano and amazed us with her versatility, her ability to not only tell a story as she's singing, but to then segue in the middle of a song and give you a rendition of a historical incident that she was involved in that's related to the specific song that she's singing. Mm -hmm. She's gracious. She is or was an amazing queen after performances where she would allow people to come and speak with her. She was eloquent and very giving of her time. Yeah. And, and and you say was, but for for me she is. She yes. very much is. I mean, she, she's probably she's definitely one of my favorite musicians. Maybe even my my most favorite, mm. just just because of what her legacy means, and you know the way um, she could not separate conversations of womanhood from blackness, from yes. being a musician. Yes. And I, I wonder how you deal with the conversation 
of uh, that, that space between um, blackness and womanhood as it applies to Women's History Month. Because during Black History Month, you know, there, there are certain names we know and learn, yes. but it seems like that bit of equity isn't always there for Women's History Month. I would say that's the case, and that was particularly forming my thoughts for today. I thought I should be prepared and look up some information. Oh, and sure. It put me to the point where I actually went online to a uh, African-American registry site where there's information about black women and International Women's mm-hmm. Day and gives the history of IWD from the perspective of those who were consistently noted and talked about at the time the registry opened and that it really focused around people like German delegates Claire Zetkin or someone from the 1910 International Socialist Women's Conference, women from the Socialist Party of America. Mm -hmm. One article specifically made no mention of African-American women uh, in the early days of International Women's Day. And I found that evocative as well as informative. It's not often that that's a point of conversation on IWD issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And and something that I had planned on asking you last month was, you know, what what is wrong with this idea of Black History Month? And you're and you're really laying out a similar story when it comes to Women's History Month. And and that's why I really wanted to make sure that we started this conversation uh, with a shout out to to Nina Simone, because she, she is just one of the many um, black women who who kind of get for, forgotten when it comes to these conversations. Um, on, on this podcast, uh, maybe uh, last episode or a few episodes ago, we talked a little bit about Sister Rosetta Tharp, yes. you know, a, a name that many people just don't know, but she is seminal to music. And and, and I'm sure with uh, your experience in the in the world of uh, so-called jazz, there, yes. there are a plethora <laughs> of names that you could throw out that we don't really think about. Yes, yes. This is quite an aside, but... A, um an African-American composer and pianist and forerunner in the state of uh, New York, particularly New York City, I'll bring to my forefront Amina Claudine Myers. Mm. She is a pianist. She is a composer. She has performed across uh, three or four continents, and she has consistently maintained her perspective as an African-American composer Mm -hmm. and performer. And that's always evident in her performances, not only by the music that she chooses to perform, she plays her own compositions, but she also then heralds back to music of Nina Simone Mm -hmm. or others of her ilk that many don't know anymore because that music is difficult to find on on commercial stations, certainly on some community-based stations, right. but they are no longer household names as they were in my era. And, you know, when we talk about 
um, the names that are overlooked. You know, it's important, I think, to acknowledge the names that aren't overlooked. And, you know, our, our first um, professional interaction was in a pre-concert talk with the Minnesota Orchestra. But, yes. you know, leading up to that event, there were so many um, nerves. And I, and I want to say that it seemed like there were so many, but there there actually were. W- where do you think those nerves come from? Why, why are con- so so for folks who don't know, um, we were we were tasked with. Um, tackling the issue of cultural appropriation as it applies to the music of George Gershwin. And then when you start talking about race and music, things, you know, some people get a little bit uncomfortable. Where do you think that discomfort comes from? Well, my personal opinion is that we are still at a point where we as a society feel comfortable treating each other as equals. Mm. 50-50, 100-100, not 32 and 150, mm-hmm. those dynamics still remain with us. And while we have many examples of having overcome some of the most horrific differences in balance, we witnessed clearly in that day of conversation that there was still trepidation. Mm-hmm. The ability to feel comfortable on either side of the color spectrum and saying exactly what you've experienced and or now feel can be alarming for some people or uncomfortable. The possibility that that he or she may be considered racist by a particular remark when he or she doesn't feel that that's their persona mm-hmm. can make you feel like you're on a hot seat. Lately, I've been saying that folks are more afraid of being called a racist than being a racist. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and not that that's a word. You know, w- what I think is often forgotten is that, you know, we aren't out here to just, you know, point the finger and call everyone racist. But but at the end of the day, there are certain practices that exist, you know, that that have roots there, and all, you can go all the way back to Jim Crow, and and uh, s- certainly when it uh, when it comes to music, there are just practices that have siphoned certain individuals and certain conversations uh, away from the front. So you know, yes. people get uncomfortable when we bring them to the front. Yes, that's true. Our our, our uh, conversations like those, you know, you uh, you you're a professional in the in the world of jazz, but but do you cross over into classical very often when it comes to to many conversations at all? Only when I feel comfortable with the information that I'm sharing that I know I am not speaking uh, out of tongue or Mm -hmm. speaking out of character. I really make an effort to rely on what I specifically know and or have experienced because both are valid. And if I'm unsure, I really do ask the person with whom I'm engaged to share what they know because it's teaching me as well as the listening audience or for whomever is in the room, I at no point profess to be uh, totally on in touch and on top of everything that's happening in the field. I do have a particular interest towards music and musicians and composers that are in the African-American community because it's where I still exist and mostly reside. But I also feel great that... I can tell you about some people from other cultures who are active and performing. And I do have an interest in seeking out musicians and composers that I don't know that I hear on NPR or that I hear on K 
KMOJ or mm-hmm. that I hear on the variety of stations that I'm engaged in when I'm driving. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that put me, you know, and my work on the map for all intents and, intents and purposes is, you know, exploring the relationship between gender and classical and race and classical. But when it comes to jazz, it seems like conversations of race have to be at the forefront. It, it seems like there's no separating that conversation. Yes. It, it, I say that because of the history of jazz musicians finding it difficult to be hired in certain gigs or in certain examples. Uh, a band that was primarily white would not be as well attended in a black community. And there were, as I've been told, some unofficial combinations where if you had a quintet, it was expected that you had at least two black people in the band. Hmm. Things of that sort are not so much found in history. I learned those things from the African-American composers and musicians that I've come to know over time. And when they share stories about going to different cities or different sites and what was required for them to be considered a band that could play in sometimes a segregated audience. Right, right. Um, I, I kind of want to uh, rewind and mm-hmm. and go back to your um, musical beginnings. I, I read. I think I read that you were raised in a rhythm and blues household. Well, what is a That's rhythm and right. blues household? <laughs> that is a household where the majority of the music that's coming out of the Grundig uh, record player is music that you can dance to and or sing to. When I was growing up, the popular mode of dance was called the bop, okay. which is a um, man and a woman or two girls if you didn't have any brothers in the house. Sure. And you start out holding hands and you do steps with your feet that are very specific. There's a rhythm. If you mess up the rhythm, they don't ask you to dance with them anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And it's with music that's uh, rhythm and blues primarily, men and or women. Yeah. And and when it came time for you to, um, you know, seek higher education, you initially thought law would uh, would be the world you lived yes. in, but but you but you two stepped back over into music. I did. I attended a concert at a place in Chicago called Ratzos, and one of my sorority sisters is a vocalist, and she was performing that night. So I was there to support her. And when I was leaving, long story short, there were two gentlemen sit- sitting by the door, and they were taking notes. And they said, do you want to put your name on the mailing list? And I assumed they meant the mailing list for my sorority sister who was performing there Mm -hmm. because she was the act that night. I wrote my name down, gave the information, said goodbye and left. And when I was leaving with my other sorority sister, she said, you didn't know those people. Why did you give them your information? I said, because I'd like to know when Sonia is going to be singing again. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I don't know if that was the right thing to do. Fast forward one day, I got a call from someone saying their name and that they were performing at such and such place on such and such day. I didn't know the person. And then he went on to say, and maybe you want to get the Sun-Times today because my performance has been announced in the Sun-Times. Growing up in Chicago, knowing someone, an African-American specifically, this was in 1977, that they were featured in the Sun-Times was 
a very big deal. Mm, wow. I didn't recall who the person was. I came to understand later that that's the person I gave my name to. Okay. <laughs> and I went to that concert and I continued to follow that group of musicians moving forward to where I am now. So that took me out of rhythm and blues exclusively. It took me out of what I call uh, maybe a Nat King Cole kind of jazz perspective okay. and took me into what became later and is still known within the spectrum as avant-garde music. Oh, wow. How would you... Is, is avant-garde music something that um, crosses genre or, or from your perspective, is it its own separate thing? I would say it is inclusive of the quote-unquote rules of jazz in that you play certain keys a certain way. Mm. You don't necessarily try to make one sound clash against the other for no apparent reason. And it is now, in my description, a kind um, a musical style that is not predictable. You as an audience member or listening to a recording, you're not necessarily going to be able to hum the next section of the music as you would in some of the early forms of jazz, classical jazz, singing forms of jazz, etc. It's uh, it's more like being on a roller coaster and you don't know if you're going to make a twist, mm -hmm. if you're going to make a deep dive down, if you're going to go up to the top. You're there to experience it. and A lot like the career of a musician. Yes, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yes. Where, where, does, uh, where, where does your cultural activism uh, tie into this? Because I think I also read that, you know, arts administration was a part of your journey, cultural activism. Yes. How, how did those things meld and mesh together? Well, upon meeting the individuals at that club one night, I learned that they were part of a larger organization called the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, and that they came together for the purpose of ensuring that their individual voices in scoring music would be heard and accessible in community. They had an office space. Uh, they seemed to share the responsibilities of managing the organizations. Of course, they had officers. One of the original founders is Muhal Richard Abrams, who is, or excuse me, he's recently deceased, was a composer and a very astute pianist. And when I learned that they were so involved in community and did concerts in communities that were affordable, but they didn't have administrative skills, I began to volunteer for them and did paperwork and had experience doing writing as a college student. So I then embarked upon grant writing for them and became a career for me. I was their executive director for a considerable amount of time. I learned extensive amounts of information about music presentation, particularly community and primarily male musicians teaching the craft to students. There was a school of music that taught students from 7 to 14 years of age at no charge. Oh, wow. Every Saturday morning. And all of those experiences have remained with me in ways that affect 
the day-to-day work that I'm doing now. Yeah, and I actually have a, a couple of uh, AACM questions that I'm going <laughs> to save for a little later. Um, but but when I think about that cultural activism and the role that, um, you know, that organization has in the city of Chicago, I can't help but to think about um, the blackness that is Chicago, you know, the uh, Florence Price, you know, the first yes. black woman to have a, a symphony perform that happened in Chicago. Yes. Uh, yes. You, we can talk about the Great Migration. You know, our first black president came from the exactly. city of Chicago. I knew exactly. I, I can point out his house in my brain. To okay, you. And you, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I lived. Not, yeah, I lived about six blocks away from his home. I, I wonder how um, vital that that sense of activism and cultural activism and pro and pro blackness is in a city that already has so much um black history and is such a hotbed for for black art is is racial equity and cultural activism something that really needs to to happen in a city like Chicago it did at the time that i was growing up there i would say the emphasis is not as heavy here in 2020 as it was in 1977, Mm. or at the point where I was extremely active with them from 79 until uh, 1980s, 1989. Okay. Wow. I I wonder, and, and, you know, one one of the questions I kind of wanted to set aside was, you know, the fact that um, AACM, you know, African, black, none of those words are are in the, in the, in the title of the organization. Um, what was the climate of the 70s? Did that have something to do with it? It seems like such a pro-black organization would 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 uh, outwardly, you know, affirm that mission. My informed response would be the word African-American at the time they came together in some communities was laughed at. And, oh, that's interesting. Well, there were many people who would not say African-American. They'd say, hey, that nigga over there. And that was an experience that I knew of in grammar school and in high school. Uh, on the day that there was a, a race riot in Chicago during Martin Luther King's visit there, I went to a technical high school that was predominantly white, and I had to walk home some 25 blocks because I wasn't allowed to get on the bus in that neighborhood on that particular day. So there there are key points that come and go with me, and the fact that the organization chose to say African-American at that time certainly suggests to me the political and social impacts that they were dealing with and how they wanted to move ahead and maintain their sense of humanity that is rightfully due to all of us. It's one thing for for me to get angry and, and get ready to march based on, you know, what what I read and about what happened, what what I've read about the past and what I've been told about the past. But, you know, you you actually live this. How do you how do you move forward? How, how do you have peace of mind with experiences like those? I have peace of mind because I have to be cognizant that I made it through and that I did so because I had parents that were middle class uh people who worked my my 
The father who raised me was a policeman. The father who gave me birth worked at the post office. Um, all of the people that were seminal in my life who were adults were working hard to maintain the ability to be stated as African-American as opposed to many other nomenclatures that they heard behind their back or laughingly someone would make a joke and they were supposed to say, ha ha. So it suggests to me the founders of the AACM were raised in those similar communities and similar situations with mothers, fathers, aunts, and uncles. And they were very specific about how they wanted to be identified. I wonder if um, the music that kind of existed in your periphery and and, and uh, in your circle at that time reinforced some of these challenges and, and, and what had to be done. So certainly, you know, Nina Simone did not separate the no. activism from the music, but I wonder if, if that musical culture is, is one that sort of permeated, uh, you know, the, the, the culture and the, the climate. I would, say, I would say so, particularly when I think back on the names of the compositions that the music, musicians created and that there was often some connection to what was very specific to African-Americans or uh, black people. And the fact that the places where they performed were in communities where they were open to anyone who came, but they were in what we call black communities. In sometimes a storefront, a person would have a small bar and they would allow the musicians to perform there or during the daytime, their place was a restaurant. But at night on Tuesdays, it'd be a place where they could play and continue to put forth a sense of consciousness. When, when most folks think back um, to those days, you know, specifically, um, you know, when it comes to civil rights and all that sort of thing, it, it uh, from, from a lot of people's perspective, it was the church and gospel and, and all that sort of thing that that centered, you know, the, uh, the the activism. But it sounds like up north, it was it was more of the restaurants and bars. And... It, I would say that was certainly that I grew up in an environment that it was very centered in churches and and religious uh, sites, et cetera. However, as the sons and daughters of African-Americans who worked in the steel mills and at the post office, et cetera, came to fruition and came into their own being, the recognition that there were other links within the community in addition to the church, to which the music and the conversations and the sense of growth could be expanded, why not do that? Mm. There's never just one P in the pod. Yeah. And I believe they took to heart the importance of invigorating the community in as many ways as possible and not in the quote one temple that exists within a community of African Americans. Do you feel like that unity is 
is there today? Uh, have we taken a step forward or a step back when, when it comes to that mm. black unity, having the having the meeting place? You know, right now I'm thinking about uh, James Baldwin, who who said, you know, the most segregated time in America is high noon on Sunday. You know, mm-hmm. that is definitely still the case to an extent. But I, I'm I'm wondering if if you uh, feel or see that unity in 2020 outside of the church. Uh, hall outside of the bar or the or the restaurant. Oh well, I do, and I I do because I am not confined to any one specific form of engagement in the community. Uh, I listen and go to concerts by an Asian uh, performer, Gao Hong, who plays. Yeah, she plays the pipa. Yes. Yeah. Shout out right. to her. Yeah. That's right. I can go to another example where on on the past four Saturdays, I go and listen to bluegrass. I couldn't have told you what bluegrass was if you paid me until, <laughs> you know, f- four or five years ago, very recently. And I see some people who look like me in those uh, concerts, in those concert halls. And when I don't, it reminds me that the next time I'm buying a ticket, that I'll buy a ticket for someone else and say, hey, come with me. We're going to go see so-and-so and so. And I don't give up. When I buy tickets for other people, I don't give a long explanation. I just say, hey, let's go hang out. And typically they come away with, wow, what was that? Or I never heard about that. Or what was she doing? And it's a great extension of conversation that then goes into other communities. But, you know, despite the fact that that folks like you and me will explore and, and go into yes. some music, you know, by and large, the, the classical concert hall is 99.99.99% white. You know, what, yes. uh, surely you you would say that, well, I, I, won't, I won't put words in your mouth, but it seems like for me, there is a responsibility on the part of those institutions. You know, they we, we can't change the audience if what is happening on stage doesn't change. Exactly. And the... I'm not aware of any specific cultural pressure at this point for the producers and the executive directors and the other decision-making people on boards of directors related to orchestra music are having these conversations. I won't even go to the point of saying how often I don't see people like myself in those audiences because it's not saying, okay, I've said it, but it's not speaking to the audience that needs to hear and take action. And those are the decision makers in the field of orchestra. And I think that's the key. We we aren't yet in those decision-making seats. That's correct. If, if you were in one of those decision-making seats, what, what do you think some of the things uh, would be that you bring forward? Because, you know, if, if, the, if the best orchestra in the world decides to program music by black composers, that in itself isn't going to get us in the concert hall. No, and just because the music is written by African-Americans does not mean that the performers would be African-American. That as well. That as well. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be very specific about that. Yeah. (laughs) And at this point, conversations such as those we're having now really require consistency across fields. We talk about this within the music field. There are probably 
like-minded people within sculpture, within the fine arts, Mm -hmm. expanding our ability to converse across artistic fields of expression, I think can't hurt us. It's more likely going to be helpful. And taking a little more energy at events when you're asked, for example, when I go to the Ordway to fill out a response card and being very specific and saying at the end when it says anything else, I might write down the names of musicians that would be appropriate at that particular venue. Oh, wow. I hope you've written my name down. <laughs> I didn't know I'm what instrument you play. <laughs> and, and for folks who uh, don't know, the Ordway is home of the uh, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, Minnesota Opera, and, yes. and all this. Well, don't, don't tell them that I can sing, okay? okay? As, okay. as long as we can make that deal. <laughs> um, I want to transition a bit um, into uh, your role on the radio. When I got into public radio a few years ago, I was just, you know, I still remember, I'll never forget that first pledge drive, that first membership drive. Yes. I was just so moved by uh, the community effort and the community aspect of it. But, um, you know, a couple of minutes ago, you, you mentioned those barriers. And from my perspective, there there are generations of practices that have just become um, normal when it comes to radio programming. And um, it seems like one of those barriers, at, at least from my perspective, is fighting against those um, traditions. You know, uh, folks folks don't want to talk about um, issues of, of racial equity and gender equity. That, that turns uh, people off. Is that something that you consider a, a barrier or a challenge? Well, because we're, we interview uh, an array of people on radio at KBEM, but it is never connected to the to issues that you've just raised. It's typically very relate sorry, it's typically in relationship to the composition or the history of the musician or composer. It is centered around where the musician might be traveling, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I really want to say, it doesn't cross over into sociological or psychological kinds of uh, interaction. Yeah. But 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 as we've already you know established, in many cases there is no separation of those things. Well, we started that off talking about Nina Simone and her lyrics and her delivery certainly exudes a fullness of her life that she had no compunction and sharing with all of her audiences. Yeah, most famously, you know, I I always bring up that tune, Mississippi Goddamn. Yes. You know, when when it gets into the the biting cold, when it's 20 below and and 30 below here in Minnesota, my partner likes to say Minnesota Goddamn. So so as we wrap up here, you know, um, I want to talk about musical definitions. So as, as someone who's not in front of the mic, but, you know, someone who plays a, a big role in what makes it onto the air, um, are there conversations of how you define jazz, how you define creative music, what, what, what is appropriate for, for air at, at your station? No, there are, there are not 
conversations at that level, we do get phone calls and and people will express themselves, which I'm happy you to say. You say that so nicely. <laughs> they be, express themselves. Yes, they do. <laughs> and at times I am delighted that they're calling because they've not heard anything like that and they're enjoying it. At other times, they're they're not finding it to their palate, but they're open to the conversation as to why it's being shared. And we're always mindful that they can turn the dial as opposed to even calling to express their thoughts. So we remain open to all points of communication. When it comes to lifting those very uh, rigid guidelines, those barriers, uh, well, when it comes to the way we siphon certain bits of, of music, um, do you think there would be benefits there on the classical side? I, I wonder if you think it would be beneficial mm-hmm. to organizations uh, like orchestras, like classical radio stations, to just um, erase definitions and to, to expose people to music. Yes, particularly it it raises the question for me, are there not listeners to orchestral music that make comments to orchestra members, mm. to performers, to those who make those decisions? Because there is such a diversity throughout the universe, I find it hard to believe that there aren't people listening to classical music who've raised questions or offered suggestions for bending what's presented. It's sometimes seen at the Ordway when the orchestra performs and the program for that evening also includes two other acts that are not classical. Mm. I've enjoyed those experiences, particularly because there's often an opportunity to hear resident musicians in that setting who are accompanied by maybe just the brass section or the percussion session. And that's how it should be. Yeah, yeah. How how do you define that? Uh, You you say things that aren't classical. How do you define classical? What does that even mean? Well, I'll go back to where we started, listening to records on our Grundig system at home. If there's no point within the composition that you can't snap your fingers or sing back to yourself some part of the melody, then it is possibly classical music. <laughs> lack of lack of soul, lack of uh, seasoning. Kind of. <laughs> um, there's something within myself that, or within my spirit, my training, my upbringing. I'm not sure what, or maybe being untrained. That's that's could I should admit that I can't sing back to you a portion of a classical composition. Well, we'll have to we'll have, we'll have to fix that. I'll I'll, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll send you some uh, uh, recordings. My last question, you know, as we um, as we exit uh, Women's History Month, unfortunately, many people will you know forgo forgo certain conversations until you know this time this time next year if if someone um needs to take one thing with them to to not forget about despite the fact that it's not women's history month what 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 would that be what what do people need to take with them into april and may and june and beyond i would ask people to take their sense of curiosity into effect 
in the next three months and push yourself to open an encyclopedia, go on the web and list a name of someone, some one woman and find out more about that person. If you listen to the news regularly and a particular female reporter's name is often noted, what do you know about her beyond her representation in that moment? What's her background? Where was she born? What happened for her in her life prior to that position? And think about that just in your circle of friends. Do you really know who your best friend is? What she has contributed beyond the things you talk about on the phone? Is she in a professional field where you know her work title but you don't know what she does or how she's contributed to the to the furtherance of that specific entity? Mm. Wow, I, I think I'll have to. I'll, I'll do that myself. Every time I see a, a woman's name, I'll, I'll make a point to learn something about her. Janice, uh, what what an honor to, to sit here and talk with you. He, hearing your stories are are so uplifting to me. Um, thank you for um, persevering. You know, you went through things that fortunately I will never have to. So um, I thank you for your for your work, and I thank you for uh, keep on keeping on. Is one of those songs used to say, right? Yes. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity. I want the listeners to know that you're wearing a very fabulous garment. It is a beautiful sweatshirt, and it has the word privileged, and each letter of the word is in a different color. And that, to me today, is very significant. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Janice Lane Ewart in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Trilogy Week. Garrett, you did that one solo. That one almost didn't happen. It almost didn't happen. Yeah, we tried to have uh, Janice in on uh, during Black History Month. She got ill um, again with, with this uh, coronavirus scare. I was concerned that you know we wouldn't be able to get this done, but we actually got her into the studios at the very last minute. I mean, as soon as she left, they they locked down um, our building to guests. So I'm um, a huge thanks. Uh, to Janice for uh, popping in. Um, And again, just one more time, I would really love to underscore uh, what Janice um, said at the end there when she talks about sparking that curiosity. As we move away from Women's History Month, remember that, you know, that news anchor you see on TV or that voice you hear on the radio, there's a story there and there are accomplishments there. Um, So I hope that um, if you're a man or a woman moving forward uh, uh, through the year, uh, that you'll just not let that uh, curiosity die and uh, continue to explore the legacy um, of, of women uh, year-round. And again, I would like to uh, remind you that in the description uh, of this opus, we provided a couple more links uh, for ways that you can support artists uh, during this crisis. Again, the Arts Leaders of Color Emergency Fund and the Equalsound.org uh, Corona Relief Fund. So uh, be sure to check those out and make your contributions um, as you're able. Um, so, um, Scott, uh, one of the things that uh, Janice and I kind of got into toward the end was, you know, the definition of classical music and the lack of its uh, singability. You know, mm-hmm. Janice, Janice talked about not really being able to uh, sing a classical um, melody. So to round out this opus of Triloquy and to round out uh, Women's History Month here on Triloquy, I thought it might be great 
if we um, hear from a woman named Laura Downs. She's a, a pianist who has uh, recorded so many pieces of music by women and women of color. Uh, she uh, sent this track to me and gave me the uh, permission to use it. It's a tune by Florence Price called First Romance. So Janice, uh, as you're uh, listening to this, I hope you'll be able to uh, catch a melody to uh, sing and, and, and hum to your friends. Um, happy Women's History Month. Thanks so much for listening to Triloquy. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we will yes. see you next time.